Ephesians, the riches of grace, teaching number 16, is called Put on the New. Paul talks about in Ephesians 4, starting at verse 17, going through 21. He says, so I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed or with the continual lust for more. And we went through all those verses last week, but tonight we're going to begin looking at Ephesians 4, 22 through 23. It says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So what we see in this verse is we see a contrast between two identities. Identity number one is the old self or the old man. And this is our identity before we came to faith in Jesus. Ephesians 4.22 says, your old self, the word your is not in the Greek. It's really the old self because it's not your old self. You don't have an old self. It's the old self. It's not who you are anymore. So Ephesians 4.22 is the old self. Now, what is the old self here? The old self, of course, is our identity before we came to faith in Christ. What is that identity? Well, let's go back through Ephesians, and let's look at the identity of the old self or the identity of the old man before a person came to faith in Christ. So the identity of the old self or the old man is in Ephesians 2.1, spiritually dead, disconnected from God. So everybody is born spiritually dead and spiritually disconnected from God. Remember when God told Adam and Eve not to eat of the tree or told Adam not to eat of the tree. And then if he ate of the tree, he would die. And so when Adam ate of the tree, he died spiritually. Spiritual death is being disconnected from God. It's, it's being our relationship with God was severed. Jesus came to reconcile us to God, to bring us back into relationship with God. So we're looking at the old self, the identity of the old self, Ephesians 2, 3, and 5, 5 through 6, talks about the phrase objects of wrath. It says, when God, through his love, cleanses the earth from sin and sinners in preparation for his righteous kingdom on earth, that's the wrath of God. The wrath of God is not the anger of God towards sinners. Because we find out in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that God demonstrates his love for us while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The anger of God to me is the love of God when he removes sin and sinners from the earth. It's when he cleanses the earth of all sin and all sinners in preparation for his righteous kingdom that's going to come on earth. Remember in 2 Peter Peter talks about this coming kingdom of God, and he calls it the home of righteousness, or the home where righteousness dwells, where everything is right, everything is good, everything is just, where everybody is loved and everybody loves. In Revelation 22, John talks about the new heaven and the new earth, 
and on the new earth, there's no hurt, there's no pain, there's no death, there's no destruction, there's no disease, there's no violence. It's utopia. It's God's righteous kingdom on earth. So prior to God's establishment of his righteous kingdom on earth, he's going to remove from the earth all sin and all sinners. Those who've come to faith in Christ, our identity is no longer sinner. Our identity is saint. And the saints will be a part of God's eternal kingdom. A saint is someone who's been cleansed from all sin and forgiven of all sin by the blood of Christ. And it's been, we've received that through faith in Jesus. So the old identity is without God and without hope in the world. Paul talks about that in Ephesians 2.12. He's talking about the Gentiles specifically there that before the revelation of who God is came to them, that they were without God in the world and they were without hope in the world. And it doesn't get much worse than that. To be in the world and not know who God is and to be in the world and have no hope and have no meaning, have no purpose. Think about for a minute the Gentile nations. The Gentile nations were in Ephesus. They were worshiping false gods. You know, they had these little idols. They had the marketplace where many, many idols were sold. So they were seeking to find meaning and purpose. They were seeking to discover who is God. They would go into the marketplace and they would buy these idols and they would worship these idols. That's why Paul says you are without God in the world because these are false gods without hope in the world. They were searching for hope. They were searching for meaning. Why am I here? What's life all about in these false gods or these idols? And then all of a sudden Paul shows up in Ephesus and Paul begins to declare who the real God is to them. But before they came to faith in Christ, their old identity or their old man was an identity without God and without hope in the world. Paul says in Ephesians 2.12 that your old identity, that you were foreigners to the covenants, meaning that the Gentiles had no idea about the covenants that we read about in Jewish scripture. The Davidic covenant, which is Jesus coming as king, that's Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. Also, Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6 is the Davidic, is the Davidic covenant where a Messiah is going to come, a Christ is going to come. He's going to rule and reign on earth as king. He's going to bring righteousness to the world. He's going to bring peace to the world. So the coming Messiah, before the Gentiles came to faith in Christ, they had no idea about any of what was going on in the Jewish scriptures and the promises God was making through Abraham and through the Jewish people. They were foreigners to the new covenant. And the new covenant is Jesus dying for our sins as Savior, rising from the dead to give us life, Isaiah 53. The new covenant is also talked about by Jeremiah in chapter 30 of Jeremiah, that their new covenant is coming where our sins are not going to be counted against us by God and where he remembers our sins no more. So the Gentiles had no concept of who God was in the world. They had no concept of the Davidic covenant. They had no concept of the new covenant. They were far away from God. We, so that's the old identity. Now, the new identity is the new self or the new man. Remember, we're talking about put off the old self, put on the new self. Paul's writing to those in the Ephesians church. So identity number two is the new self or the new man. And this is our identity after we come to faith in Jesus. So Ephesians 4.23 says, put on the new self. 
All right, so what's the new self that we're to put on? Well, let's go back into Ephesians. Let's take a look at the identity of the new self. So Ephesians 1.3 says, we've been blessed by the Father with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So the new self is the person who's been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And then what Paul does in Ephesians 1 is he begins to list these blessings. He goes into Ephesians 2, into Ephesians 3, following the theme of the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ that we receive simply by faith. So we're blessed by the Father with every spiritual blessing in Christ. The new self, the identity is we're holy and we're blameless before God. Holy means we're clean and pure before God. Blameless means our record's been cleared. There's no sin God can accuse us of. There's no sin God can hold us guilty for because we're blameless before God because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. He took the blame. He took the accusation. He took our guilt. So the new man, our identity, is we're clean before God and our record's been cleared for all eternity. We are, we've been justified by faith is the way Paul puts it in Galatians and in Romans. The new identity of the new man is we're loved sons and daughters of the Father. That's Ephesians 1.5. The new identity is we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins through the blood of Jesus. That's Ephesians 1.6-8. The new identity is we have salvation. That's ours in Christ, and it's free, and it's full, and it's forever, and it's sealed by the Holy Spirit. So when the Holy Spirit seals our salvation, we are eternally secure, and that's found in Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. Those who God has poured out his love and his mercy and his grace upon, the new identity, that's in Ephesians 1, 6 through 8, and Ephesians 2, 4 through 6. We've been made alive with Christ, that's Ephesians 2, 5. And remember, the old identity is we were born spiritually dead and spiritually separated from God, and the new identity is we've been made alive with Christ. We've been raised up with Christ. We've been seated with Christ in the heavenlies. So this is our identity. This is the identity of the new man. This is who you are in reality. I know this is theology, but this theology touches the reality of our lives. So we've got to look beyond the fact that it's theology and understand this is reality for us. The reality is our salvation has been sealed. We're loved and loved sons and daughters of the Father. Our reality is that we're alive with Christ. Our reality is that we've been raised up and seated with Christ. Our reality is in Ephesians 2, 6, 8 through 9, this new identity, which is our reality. It's we've been saved by grace. It's not by works, but a gift received through faith in Jesus. So we have been saved. The new identity is we are God's handiwork in Christ Jesus. That's Ephesians 2, 10. Our new identity, of continuing in Ephesians 2.10, is we were created to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So good works don't save us, but now that we're saved, God's created good works for us that he's prepared for each individual person based upon how he's wired you, based upon how he's designed you. And faith, we just believe by faith that God, you prepared good works in advance for me. And I'm going to trust that you're going to unfold these good works. You're going to bring them to me and I'm going to get up every day and I'm going to go to work and be a good dad. And, and you're going to unfold good works for me throughout the day. 
our new identity is we've been brought close to God through the blood of Jesus. Remember, the old identity was far away from God. The new identity is through the blood of Jesus, we've been brought close to God, which tells us that we can't bring ourselves close to God. You know, I used to hear things like, hey, Brad, you need to get close to God. Well, the reality is in the, my old man cannot get close to God. The old identity, the old man is far away from God. And it took the blood of Jesus to bring you and me close to God because the only way we can be close to God is for all of our sins to be forgiven. The only way we can be close to God is that we are holy and that we are pure and that our records been cleared and our hearts have been cleansed. That's the only way we can get close to God, which tells me there's nothing I can do to get myself close to God. Jesus has done that for me through his blood. And by faith, I trust in what Christ has done. And I believe that Jesus has brought me close to God. So my reality is not trying to get close to God. My reality is I am close to God because of what Jesus has done for me on the cross and because he indwells me and he lives in me. And now I am close to God because of what Jesus has done. Our new identity is we're not under the law. We're not under its commandments, its regulations. They were abolished in the death of Jesus. That's in Ephesians 2, 14 through 15. We're under grace, which is Ephesians 2, 15. We're a member of the new family of grace, the new humanity, as Paul calls it. Our new identity is we're reconciled to God through the cross. We're brought we're brought into relationship with God through the cross of Jesus Christ. That's a close relationship with God through what Jesus did for us on the cross through his blood. Ephesians 2.18, again, our new identity, the reality we live in as believers is we have access to the Father by the Spirit of Jesus in us. So the believer's reality is that Jesus himself lives in our hearts, that Jesus has taken residence in our hearts. Our hearts have become the home of the spirit of Jesus. And through Jesus, now we have direct access to the father. We have relationship with the father. A father-son relationship is what we have. The new identity, Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. We're no longer foreigners or strangers from God. That was the old identity. We were in the old identity. We were strangers. We were foreigners. We were far away from God. But now in the new identity, we're no longer foreigners or strangers from God or from his family. But as believers in Christ, we're part of the Holy Spiritual Temple of God, which God now lives by his spirit. This is the family of grace. And every time somebody comes to faith in Jesus, they're made holy, they're made righteous, they're forgiven, and they're placed into the temple as a member of God's family, the spiritual temple. The new identity, Ephesians 3, 6, is we're sharers together with Israel in the promise of Jesus. So all the promises we find in Jewish scriptures that tell us about the coming of the Messiah to bring the Davidic covenant, the Messiah coming to bring the new covenant, that the Gentiles share in these promises with the Jews. Before this revelation was given to Paul, nobody knew that the Gentiles were going to share together in the promises that were made for the people of Israel and that God was going to bring an end to Judaism and he was going to bring an end to the law and he was going to create one new family called the church. 
consisting of Jew and Gentile, and they would share together in the blood of Christ. They would share together in the person of Christ, and a whole new family would come into existence called the church that would be different from the nation of Israel and would not have the law of Moses, but would, we would relate to God through the person of Jesus. So the new identity in Ephesians 3.12, we relate to God in freedom and in confidence. Boy, that, that is such a truth for the believer in Christ. We don't relate to God in shame and guilt. We don't relate to God in bondage. We don't relate to God in fear. But we relate to God in freedom and confidence because of what Jesus has done for us. That's why you and I relate to God with freedom and with confidence, where we can go before him without shame and without guilt. The new identity, which again is our reality, Ephesians 3.17, is Christ dwells in our hearts. And in the context of that verse, Paul is praying that through the indwelling presence of Christ, that the revelation of the love of Christ would come to us, that we would have a deep understanding of how much we're loved by Jesus. And that's in Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. We're loved by Jesus with an immeasurable love. The height, the depth, the width, and the length of the love of Christ is what Paul prays for believers in Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. Again, our identity, our new man, this new identity is the power of God's grace and love is at work within you to do more than you could ask, could hope, or could imagine. That's Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. So the new identity is Christ in you, the spirit of Jesus in you, the spirit of Jesus in you to give you a revelation of the love of Jesus for you the spirit of Jesus in you to do more in you and through you than you could ever hope, dream, ask, or imagine. And us coming to that understanding that my identity in Christ is my reality for life. It's the real deal. Jesus really lives in me to give me the revelation of the love love he has for me. Jesus really lives in me to work within me to do more than I can ask, hope, or even imagine is Jesus living in us. I was waking up every morning. Jesus indwells me. Jesus lives in me. His spirit lives in me. I have access to the Father. I approach the Father with freedom and confidence. Jesus is going to give me the revelation of how much he loves me. Jesus is going to do more in me and through me than I could ever hope, ask, or imagine. So every morning as we wake up to the reality of this new identity, Ephesians 4, 7 through 16, the new identity is we've been gracefully gifted by God to help build up the church and grow the church in love. So each one of us has been given a gift, a talent, an ability that we can use to help grow the church, help build up the church, help develop the church, help grow the church so that we can reach out and reach more people. We can tell more people about the good news of the gospel of grace. And when they come to be a part of the church family, we can help grow them. We can help build them up. And it's this whole family of grace bringing their gifts and their talents and their abilities together to strengthen the church and to help the church be successful in reaching out to reach others. Now, let's take a look at the contrast between two lifestyles. We just looked at the contrast between two identities that Paul talked about. Lifestyle number one, Paul mentions, is your former way of life. Ephesians 4.22, 
says you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. Lifestyle number two, the second contrast is we're created to be like God in righteousness and holiness. So the former way of life is the way we used to live, the old man, the old self. This new way of living, the new man, is we're created to be like God in righteousness and holiness. Ephesians 4.24, put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness, or right living. The way we live each day matches our identity, that we live out our identity through right living. Uh, the idea of holiness here is, is more morality, ethics. Paul's going to go through a list of righteous living, a living of moral purity. We're going to work our way down through the list over the next, probably we'll finish that up next week. We'll get started on it this week. So there's a contrast in identities. There's a contrast in lifestyle. And now Paul talks about a contrast between two options when it comes, how are we going to live? Option number one is live according to the desires, decisions, and thoughts of the old self. Paul says in Ephesians 4.22, you were taught with your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its evil desires. So what we hear, what we see here is putting off the old self is a decision. It's a daily choice that I'm not going to live according to the deceitful desires of the old self. Now, we have a new identity in Christ that still lives in the old body. So our identity is new. The mind is not new. The body's not new. The world's still the world. And so Scripture tells us here that the old self is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. You and I have desires within us, thoughts that come into our minds. But I think what's really helpful is we understand that these, these desires, these deceitful, corrupt desires that we feel, that they're not our desires. Sometimes we'll say, why do I have that desire? Why do I have that thought? Well, the reason we have those thoughts and desires that we don't like and we don't enjoy and we wish were not a part of our lives is because they're not our desires. They're not our thoughts. If they were our thoughts and our desires, we would be happy we were having them. But the fact that I'm not happy that I have these desires, I'm not happy that I have these thoughts, is proof that I am a new person in Christ. It's proof that I have a new identity. That's the thoughts and the desires of the old identity. And so I have to understand that my desires do not determine my identity. My identity determines what I do with these desires. And that's what Paul is saying here. Know your new identity so you will know what to do with these corrupt desires that come. So when these desires come at you, when they arise from within you and me, rather than, man, these desires, it's like, hey, I'm not surprised that these desires are there. I'm not surprised that these feelings are there. I'm not surprised that these cravings are there. That's the cravings of the flesh, cravings of the old identity. So don't be shocked when these desires come. 
don't be saddened when they come. Don't shame yourself because they come. They're not yours. You have a new set of desires within your new identity. You have a new heart. The spirit of Christ lives in you. That's who you are. So don't condemn yourself when corrupt desires come your way because they're not your desires. That's the thoughts of the flesh. Paul writes a little bit about this in Ephesians 2, 3. He says, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, or really the cravings of the flesh, and following its desires and thoughts. So notice, Paul separates the old identity with its desires and thoughts from the new identity. These are the desires and the thoughts of the old identity. They're not yours. That's not who you are. That Your desires do not determine your identity. Your identity and my identity determines what we do with these desires and with these thoughts. Paul talks about Ephesians 4, 17, when we talk about between two options of how we can live. He says, so I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do and the futility of their thinking. We looked at that last week. The, the Gentiles here are those who do not know God. So there's, there's to be a, a different way of living between those who know God and those who do not know God. Those who do not know God are living from the identity that they're born with in Adam, without God, far away from God, no hope in the world, separate from God. But those who know God have a new identity, and the futility of their thinking here is, is a belief system about life. Whatever my belief system is will be ultimately how I behave. My belief system determines my behavior. That's why Paul says, be made new in the attitude of your minds. Have a new belief system about life. And we look real thoroughly at what it means to live in the futility of our thinking last week. So we won't go into that again this week. The second option that we can live with is live according to the desires, decisions, and thoughts of the new self. Paul says this in Ephesians 4, 23 through 24. He says, be made new in the attitude of your minds and put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So how do believers begin living in a new way? We begin living in a new way by having a new mindset or a new belief system or a new way of thinking. You know, a person doesn't even have to be a believer. If I want to change my life, I've got to change how I think. Right thinking produces right living. That's just a general principle in living. But Paul's talking to believers here, and he's encouraging these believers in Ephesus to be made new in the attitude of their minds. Now, think about these people in Ephesus who their entire lives, they really hadn't been taught about morality. They had no moral compass. They had no moral standards for living. And all of a sudden they come to faith in Jesus. But if you notice before Paul teaches the Ephesians who had no moral compass, they had no moral standards. Before he ever teaches them about morality, he teaches them about the reality of their identity. Paul always teaches identity before morality. Because if we don't teach identity before morality, we're just going to become self-righteous Pharisees. Identity first, morality second. 
So Paul moves from teaching on a believer's identity in Christ, starting in Ephesians chapter 1, all the way to Ephesians 4.16. So all that's mostly about identity. And then he moves into morality, and he says the way a person changes how they live is first by changing how they think. But before we change how we think, we've got to think about ourselves in a whole new way. I've got to see myself through my new identity. That has to become my reality of how I view myself. So be made new in the attitude of your mind. Paul said, think differently about life. And he said earlier in the verses we looked at last week is this new way of thinking should be in line with the kind of person Jesus was. So what we did last week, we looked at the way Jesus lived life. And that becomes the new attitude, the the new way of, of thinking. How did Jesus live? He was kind. He was a servant. We went through about nine different character traits of who Jesus was. Because what Paul is saying here is don't model your life after people who don't know the meaning to life. He's saying model your life after the person who is the very meaning to life itself, and that's Jesus. So be made new in the attitude of your mind. Paul says, Ephesians 4, 20 and 21, this is what I was just talking about. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. So what Paul's saying there is model your life after Jesus. Don't model your life after people who don't know the meaning to life. Model your life after the one who is the very meaning to life. And we went into that pretty in-depthly last week. So Paul's been talking about put off the old and put on the new. And then what he does in Ephesians 4, 25 through 520 is he gives a list of the old and the new. Put off this, put on this, put off this, put on this. So let's take a look at some of these. Therefore, each of you must put off, that's the old, put off falsehood and speak truthfully to one another. That's the new. For we're all members of one body. He says, in your anger, do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. That's the old. Do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing, that's the old, must steal no longer. That's the new. But must work doing something useful with their hands that they may have something to share with those in need. So evidently what was going on in Ephesus is there was somebody within the community who was stealing. Sometimes, well, how can that guy be a Christian if he's stealing? Well, remember, salvation is not about behavior. Salvation is about belief. Salvation is about trusting in the work of Jesus Christ. And the beautiful grace of God is that he takes us where we are. We don't clean ourselves up first and then come to Jesus. We come to Jesus just like we are, dirty and filthy and all, and he makes us holy and he makes us blameless. And we still have crumbs of the old self that are still in operation in our lives. And evidently a guy in Ephesus, that's what he, he came to faith in Christ, but he was stealing and Paul got worked. And notice Paul doesn't go into, well, he's out of fellowship with God now. He needs to confess it. He needs to get right with God. Paul's just very simple here. Hey, the guy in Ephesus that's stealing, tell him to quit stealing, to go get a job, to make money, and then to use the money that he makes to help other people rather than using his hands to take from people, use his hands to make money and to give to people. Paul is just very simple in his take off and put on. 
So Paul goes on and he says this in Ephesians 4, 29 through 32. He says, you must let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. That's the old, but only what is beneficial for building up the one in need that it may give grace to those who hear. The Greek phrase here is that they may give grace. It's the Greek word for grace to those who hear. Paul's been communicating about grace starting in Ephesians chapter 1. And now he's taken the theology of grace, which is our reality, our new identity, and he said, now take this grace that you've received from God, these spiritual blessings that have been poured out upon you freely, fully, unmerited kindness, unlimited forgiveness, unearned blessings, and give those to a, give away what God has freely given you, you, you freely give to other people. So he's saying with our words, the old person wants to condemn, the old person wants to criticize, the old person wants to slander, the old person wants to tear down. But Paul says rather than tearing down someone when they fail, rather than criticizing someone for their imperfections, He's saying, give grace away to people. Build people up when they've fallen down. Encourage people who don't get it right. Encourage people who aren't perfect and don't have it all together. And so he's talking about a whole new way of speaking here. That it may give grace to those who hear. So for us, in our relationships with people, it's the old self, the old identity, the flesh, Oh, I want to criticize, I want to condemn, I want to put down, but resist that. That's not who you are. So how can I give grace to this person within this relationship? In order for grace to be given, there has to be imperfections. There has to be failure. If there's not imperfections and there's not failure, then there's no need for grace. So the idea that we have to speak words of grace to people means that somebody in front of me just failed, that I'm living with an imperfect person. And so often we want people to be perfect. We want our children to be perfect. We want our husbands or our wives to be perfect. We want things to be perfect, people to be perfect, our neighbors to be perfect. But really, it's the imperfections in other people that grow us up in grace. How am I going to grow up in grace? Well, if everybody's perfect, then there's no need for me to give grace. But since I live around imperfect people, there's a lot of opportunities for me to grow in grace because there's going to be a lot of opportunities for me to give grace to other people. So Paul's saying, listen, rather than tear one another down, build one another up with words of grace, kindness forgiveness, gentleness. He says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. I want to stop here because you hear that phrase a lot. You don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. What I want us to look at probably in the remainder of our time, what does it mean to grieve the Spirit of God in context of Ephesians? Now notice, the context here is to use your words, to use our words to build people up by speaking words of grace. So what this tells me is when it grieves the Spirit of God in me, it grieves the Spirit, because the Spirit of Christ lives in us, right? It grieves the Spirit of God when I slander another person. It grieves the Spirit of God when I criticize another person. 
It grieves God's spirit when I put down somebody or speak unkindly to somebody. But if I speak words of grace to somebody who's fallen, somebody who didn't get it right, somebody who did make a mistake, and you and I speak grace to our wives and grace to our children and grace to our coworkers and grace to our neighbors, that makes the Holy Spirit glad. Now, the word grieve is deeply rooted in the word love. Think about this. People who grieve the death of somebody grieve their death because they love them so much. People die all the time, and I don't grieve their deaths. And I'm blessed that nobody really super close has died. I I really haven't grieved anybody's death. Some of you have had some people, I'm sure, who have been close to you, maybe parents, a brother, a sister, a child possibly, and you've grieved their death. And the reason you grieved their death was because you loved them so much while they were living. So the word grief cannot be disconnected from the word love. Romans 5, 5 says God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. The first fruit of the Spirit is love. Colossians chapter 1, 3 through 8, talks about that the Colossian people, through the Spirit of Jesus in them, were loving one another. So the reason the Holy Spirit grieves when we fail to give grace to another person is because He loves you and me so much. And He knows that when we fail to give grace to another person, it causes our relationships to fail. Whereas grace builds up broken relationships, when we are unkind, we say unkind words, unwholesome words, as Paul would say, tear down people, speak negatively to people, put our wives down or our children. That grieves the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit wants you and me to have great relationships in our lives. And the only way you and I can have great relationships is if we give away grace. That's the only way. If, if we don't give away grace to people that we're in relationship with, we're going to destroy those relationships. Grace is the key to having healthy relationships. Notice what we read in Ephesians 4, 25 through 28. It says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. So in our anger, if we condemn somebody, in our anger, if we criticize, in our anger, if we slander them, in our anger, if we put them down, if our, in our anger, if we put them in their place and we speak words to them that are hurtful in our anger, what we do is we give the devil a foothold in our relationships. We've let Satan enter into our relationships because we failed to give away grace. So if grace is the glue that holds relationships together, failure to give grace is what gives Satan a foothold in our relationships so that he can tear our relationships apart. All right, that's why, it's so, that's why it grieves the Holy Spirit so much because failure to give grace gives Satan a foothold in our relationships. And he's suddenly destroying my relationship with my wife, my relationship with my children, my relationship with people I work with, people I might go to church with, people in my extended family. 
So there's always going to be opportunities to give grace to people because we live in an imperfect world with imperfect people. Giving away grace is how we're going to have healthy relationships with people and move to healthy, mature relationships with people. So he says here, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. There's eternal security again. Paul's saying, listen, your behavior is not what determines your eternal security. Your behavior does not determine whether you're going to remain saved. Your salvation's been sealed. And that we've got, all right, my salvation is sealed. My salvation is sealed. I'm eternally secure. Behavior has nothing to do with it. I've been saved by grace through faith. I've got to know that as I grow in grace, because we're, we're going to fail. We're going to mess up. And so I've got to give grace to myself as well. One of the people we've got to give grace to so we don't give Satan a foothold is to ourselves sometimes. So it says, you must put away. So he's, he's talking about put off and put on. Put off the old self, put on the new self. You must put away every kind of bitterness, anger, wrath, quarreling, evil, and slanderous talk or malice. It talks about in other versions, revenge. You do this to me, I do this to you. And he says, well, how do you put off bitterness? Bitterness is replaying something somebody's done to me over and over again in my mind. It's like, I have an event, this person said this to me, this person did this to me, and we push play and we watch it in the theater of our minds, and then once we play it out, we hit rewind, and then we play it again, and then we hit rewind, and then we play it again, and the more we watch what somebody did to us or somebody said to us in the theater of our minds, the more bitter we become toward them. That bitterness becomes a poison within us. And then we become angry to them. That bitterness begins to build. And then wrath becomes a part of, we, we want maybe, to, well, I'm going to let them have it. I'm, I'm going to show them. And then we quarrel and we fight and we argue because we've replayed this event over and over in our mind. And we say things, slanderous talk. So Paul says, listen, Put away these kinds of way of relating to people because these give Satan a foothold in your life and because they also grieve the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit loves you so much and he wants you to have healthy relationships. So now he's going to tell us how to put away bitterness, how to put away anger, how to put away wrath, how to put away quarreling, and how to put away evil and slanderous talk. And here's what he says. Instead... Be kind to one another. Now, this word kind has been used in Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. I think it's verse 7. And in verse 7, it says, In the coming ages, that you and I will forever be in awe of the grace of God that has come to us out of his kindness in Jesus. So Ephesians 2, 7 describes the grace of God as the kindness of God to us in the person of Jesus. The kindness of God is, boy, it was kind of Jesus to forgive our sins. It was kind of Jesus to die on the cross for us. It was kind of Jesus to shower his grace upon us. It was kind of the Father to shower his mercy and his love upon us. So he says, instead, be kind to one another be compassionate to one another, be tender-hearted. don't be hard-hearted, don't be slanderous, don't be mean 
to one another. Don't say unkind things to each other. Build each other up with words of grace. It says instead, be kind to one another, compassionate, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ also forgave you. Now, here's something I want us to dig into a little bit. On the surface, it looks like Paul is using the word forgive here. Forgive one another just as God in Christ forgave you. Well, that's true that we want to forgive one another the way God has forgiven us. And this is the church, which is different than Israel. Remember, to the nation of Israel, Jesus said, unless you forgive others, your heavenly Father will not forgive you. That's Matthew 6. That's the Lord's Prayer. That's Matthew 18. Unless you forgive others, your heavenly Father will not forgive you. But remember, the church wasn't in existence at that time. And there's a separation between Israel and the church. The church is in existence here. There's a new teaching on forgiveness that the ascended Jesus has given Paul to go share with these Gentiles in these Gentile cities. And it's forgiveness that's based upon the blood of Christ. It's the forgiveness he talks about in Ephesians chapter 1. He says, in whom you have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We have forgiveness after the cross of Christ. We get forgiveness before the cross of Christ. So that the nation of Israel would get forgiveness before the cross. After the cross, we have forgiveness through faith in Christ. It's not something we get more of. It's something we have all of. But what I want us to see here is the Greek word for forgiving and forgave is not the Greek word for forgiving and forgave here. The word for forgiveness and forgave is a different word that's in the Greek text. The Greek word in the Greek text here is the word charis. It's the same word used in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It's the same word used in Ephesians 2, 6, and 2, 7 for grace. It's the same word used in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, to the praise of his glorious grace. It's the same word we just read about in Ephesians 4, where it says, build each other up with words of grace. Now think about this. Paul has been educating these believers in the book of Ephesus about grace. And now he's saying, listen, put grace into action in your relationships. Let grace work itself out of your heart into your relationship. That the same grace you've been given by God, now give to other people. So what this verse really says in its original Greek language is this. Instead, be kind to one another. That's grace. Be compassionate to one another. That's grace. Included in grace is forgiveness. But what this says here is be kind and compassionate to one another. Gracing one another is, we just don't have the word gracing in the English language. Nobody says gracing. But it's really saying gracing one another, putting grace into action. Put grace into action in your relationships so that you don't give Satan a foothold, so that you build others up according to their needs. Gracing one another, just as God in Christ has graced you. So our ability to grace another person is directly related to our awareness of how, you, how much you and I have been graced. I can't grace another person until I realize God has graced me. That's why Paul starts not with morality first. He starts with identity first. Because our identity is we've, we are people who've been graced by God. 
And as people who've been graced by God, now, now we can grace other people. So Paul doesn't start off with morality first. He starts off with identity because we've got to understand the gospel of grace first. So the gospel of grace or the good news about grace is what grows you and I up spiritually. The more we understand grace, the more we're taught grace, the more we've been, we begin to grow. Remember Paul said, I plant others water, but God causes the growth. The key is what were they planting? They were planting the gospel of grace and somebody else would come and water the gospel of grace that Paul planted. And so what God does is he takes the gospel of grace that someone plants and someone else waters. And that's what God uses to cause growth in believers. Believers, the greatest need of believers is to be taught the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace, very, very few believers understand. Very few believers have been taught the fullness of the gospel of grace. Many, many Bible teachers try to motivate their church people, their church family to grow. But in reality, what many Bible teachers don't understand, if you want your church family to grow, teach them the gospel of grace. And watch what happens when you teach people the gospel of grace. Believers, they just begin to grow. And as they grow in grace, remember what Peter said, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, which means grow up in your understanding of what Christ has done for you and who Christ is as is grow in grace. Grace is the soil from which we grow. And so Paul spends four and a half chapters, about, well, about, about four chapters teaching people about the gospel of grace. He spends in Romans eight and a half chapters teaching people about the gospel of grace. Because Paul understood that for believers to genuinely and authentically grow as healthy believers, the soil that they have to be planted in is the soil of the gospel of grace. And now we see the gospel of grace working itself out within the relationship of believers. It begins to, we make decisions now. What am I going to do with this grace that I've grown up in? Well, I'm going to give it away to other people. All right, so forgiving one another just as God in Christ also forgave you or in its original context, gracing one another just as God in Christ has graced us. And we're going to get lots of opportunities tonight, maybe, tomorrow, the rest of the week, the weekend, until you and I come back next week. You and I are going to be faced with many opportunities to grace people to speak kind words to people, to be tender-hearted to people. Watch what happens in our relationships when we begin to grace other people the way God has graced us. Watch what happens in your marriage. Watch what happens in your relationship with your children. Watch what happens maybe with your relationships with a dad or a mom who's older as you and I begin to grace people the way we've been graced.